with that deep breath. That's pretty awesome. Uh, I saw that video and we showed one similar to that at Christmas time where it was kind of the stills and it goes through the different scenes. I thought it was pretty powerful when we, when we witnessed that. Um, well, we've been going through the book of Matthew. We've just been going verse by verse, and we've made it all the way to chapter 5. We're about a third of the way through, and we've been covering about a chapter a month, almost. So in about seven or eight months, um, if we're all still here, right, uh, we're going to get to chapter 12, an exchange that takes place between Jesus and the Pharisees. It's really interesting. Once again, they are peppering Jesus with questions. They're trying to get him to say something that is going to be blasphemous. They're trying to catch him in his words and trip him up. And they eventually get so frustrated, they said, look, if you're the Messiah, do a sign. Show us a sign. Do something to prove that you're the Messiah. Which is really interesting because Jesus had performed all kinds of miracles. They had seen him do lots of stuff. Okay, but they want him to do it on demand. And as I was thinking about this, that this morning, I thought, you know, how much does that sound like us sometimes? You know, we want Jesus to perform a miracle on demand. Um, and he has already proven himself to us. And, you know, what happens with signs and wonders, signs and wonders don't necessarily produce faith. But what they do produce is a desire and a lust to see more signs and wonders. And Jesus knows this. So listen to what he says. He says this to the Pharisees. This is in Matthew chapter 12. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the son of man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No sign, but the sign of Jonah. And he's speaking here of his death and his resurrection. He's going to be dead for three days. He's going to be in the grave, and then he's going to walk out of the tomb. Way more regally, by the way, than Jonah did, who was literally deposited on the shores of Nineveh by the great fish. He is actually going to walk out of the tomb. And our entire faith, guys, our entire faith hinges on this one event. Lots of people could have died. Lots of people have died for friends, family, all of that kind of stuff. But our entire belief system is based on the resurrection that's the reason why we believe that Jesus is God and the reason why he deserves all the praise and all the honor and all the glory because he rose. Paul wrote this to the Corinthians. He said, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If Jesus didn't come out of the grain, guys, we are the most pitiful people on the world. We should be doing something else right now. We shouldn't be here if he didn't come out of the tomb, if he didn't rise from the dead. If he hadn't fulfilled the sign that he had given to the scribes and Pharisees, we should not be here. When he said, I'm going down, but I'm coming out. I'm going down to the grave, but I'm coming out of the tomb. That's why I've titled this Down and Out. I called it Down and Out. Um, you know, it's interesting because when I looked up the definition of down and out. I feel like God gave me that phrase, down and out. Uh, when you look up that phrase, Webster's Dictionary describes it as someone who has no money, someone who has no job, and somebody who has no place to live. 
No money, no job, no place to live. That's a pretty accurate description, somebody who would be down and out. And as we look at the life of our Lord, it seems kind of fitting. You know, Jesus didn't have any money. He had no money. In uh, Matthew 17, uh, Jesus and the disciples come to this region of Capernaum. This is where Jesus grew up. He was from this region. And there were some tax collectors there. And the tax collectors came over to Peter, Peter of all people, and they said, hey, does your teacher pay the temple tax? And Peter's like, of course he does. What are you talking about? He pays the tax. And then he runs off to find Jesus, right? <laughs> Better go find Jesus. I spoke too soon. So he goes to find Jesus. And this is amazing. Um, Got to love Peter. But in Matthew 17, verse 25, Jesus talks to him first. He walks in, says, and when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? You see, notice he didn't call him Peter. That's kind of sad. He called him by his old name because he was acting in his old ways. He said, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take their tax or toll? From their sons or from others? And when he said, from others, Jesus said, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea, cast a hook, and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. That's a crazy story. He's like, listen, you want to act like your old self, Simon? Tell you what, why don't you go fishing? (laughs) Go back to your old job. Here's what's going to happen. I'm going to provide for you. The temple tax was half shekel, half shekel for the temple. He said, go fishing. You're going to open up its mouth. You're going to find a whole shekel. Now he could have said, there's going to be a half shekel in there for me. You're the one that spoke. (laughs) But he said, you know what? I'll take care of you. I've got your back. I'm going to provide for you graciously. Even though you misspoke, I'm here for you. And I just think that's incredible. The incredible grace of Jesus providing for him in that moment. Now, everybody knows what tomorrow is, right? Tomorrow's last day to file your taxes. (laughs) Is anybody going fishing this afternoon? (laughs) File the taxes. Jesus didn't have any money. He also left his job. When he was 30 years old, he walked away from his job and became this traveling rabbi. Now, at the age of 30, this is significant because the Levites, when they went into full-time ministry as priests, couldn't do that until the age of 30. The age of 30, they entered priestly ministry. And it's interesting because the Levites, God said, you guys are going to be the priests. You're going to be the ones that serve me, and I am going to totally provide for you. You're not going to provide for yourselves. I'm going to provide for you through the people. So that's exactly what happened to Jesus. He left his job, his place of employment. He became a a traveling rabbi, which he did not get paid for. But he was totally reliant on God's provision at this time. He had no money. He had no job. And of course, once he left, he had no more home. He had no house. He had no place to call his own. In Matthew 8, there's an interesting conversation that Jesus has um, as he's finishing up healing people. He heals a bunch of people, including Peter's mother-in-law. And this scribe comes up to Jesus and he says, listen, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, the scribes are often mentioned with the Pharisees. And they were the ones that were constantly trying to trap Jesus. They were trying to trick him, try to find a way to trap him, catch him in his words. And yet we have a convert here, a scribe, who's been watching Jesus do all these things. And he says, I will follow you wherever you go. But Jesus says to him, he says, hey, listen, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. I got no place to call my own. Scribes, you guys live pretty nicely. You guys have it easy. If you're going to be with me, it's going to be rough. 
it's not going to be, you know, a good time. It's going to be hard times. He had no money, he had no job, and he had no place to lay his head. By all worldly accounts, Jesus would be called somebody who was down and out. These are the things that control most people, most of us, right? Our finances. Those are the things that we worry about. The things, how are we going to provide? How are we going to make things work? We think about our jobs, you know, either we don't like our jobs or we want a better job. And we also think about our houses, right? HGTV, Lowe's, Home Depot. They have done a really good job at helping us make our houses an idol, really, if you think about it. We spend so much on it. And so those are the things that control us. But in the upside down kingdom of God, Jesus says, listen, I'm not about those things, jobs, money, houses. I'm here for people. That's what it's about. That's what the kingdom is about. It's about people. Specifically, the down and out. All you have to do is listen to Jesus's mission statement. You know, big companies, they have mission statements. You know, this is why we exist, and this is what we do, and this is what we believe in. Jesus had a mission statement. One day he was back in his hometown. He was back in Nazareth. Everybody knows he's a traveling rabbi. On the Sabbath, he goes into the synagogue and he sits there. They invite him to come up front and read some of the scriptures to teach, which is a huge honor. And so they invite him up in his hometown. He goes up there and it says that they hand him the scroll of Isaiah. He didn't ask for it. They handed it to him. How convenient. And these scrolls were huge. They were huge scrolls and they had handles. And so he literally had to scroll all the way to Isaiah 61. And here's what he reads. This is Jesus's mission statement. It says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he stops right there. And then he sits down. And when he would sit down, that's when they would teach. And he says this, he says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That's what he said. That was the last thing they expected him to say, because then they tried to run him out of town at that point, as he is saying, I am the Messiah. This is my mission statement. This is the reason why I'm here. Um, Let's take a look at Isaiah 61. This is the full portion, um, just to see who exactly Jesus came to minister to. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is the reason why he stopped because the next verse is, and the day of vengeance of our God, no longer the day of vengeance of our God. It's the year of the Lord's favor to comfort all who mourn beauty instead of ashes, gladness instead of mourning, praise instead of a faint spirit. Those are the people that Jesus came to minister to the down and out. Those that are broken, those that were poor, those that were bound up and captive both physically and spiritually. We tend to think of these things as people who are down and out physically, but all of us are so depraved and wretched spiritually, he came to free us from that. Jesus focused on the down and out, restoring dignity and value to those who were kept in the margins. Jesus had a real problem with the religious people of his day because the way that they lived, the way that they taught, kept people out on the margins. It kept them on the edges. It did not bring people in. These are some of the people that Jesus ministered to, the ones that were considered down and out. The first was women. Um, In that day, the Jewish men didn't talk to women in public. They didn't even talk to their wives in public. Can you imagine? That probably created some interesting conversations at home. (laughs) Not talking to them. Um, You know, a lot of people will say that the Bible is chauvinistic. 
you know, women's liberation movement. I said, you know what? The Bible is chauvinistic. It's all about the patriarchy and men. But you know what? Wherever Jesus went, he elevated women. Jesus is the great liberator of women. Everywhere the gospel is preached in the world, women are elevated. Women are valued. Jesus ministered to women. When nobody else was talking to them, Jesus was. His ministry was supported by women. Women supported their ministry out of their means. Jesus' first appearance was to a group of women. This is incredible, guys, in a, in a society where Jewish men would pray every day, thank you, God, that you did not make me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. That's what they would pray, not real complimentary. Jesus ministered to women. And it says that in his mission statement, he ministered to the poor. He was a friend of the poor. The average Jewish person didn't have much, guys. I mean, they were considered poor by all accounts, but there were those who were destitute. They were completely reliant on others just to survive. And Jesus went to these people. His teaching humanized the poor as he showed God's love to them. And in one of his final teachings, Jesus issues a very severe warning and not to ignore the poor. At the final judgment, Jesus says, the final judgment, there's going to be sheep and there's going to be goats. All of these people claim to believe in Jesus. And he says he's going to take the sheep that we've been learning so much about in our small groups. He's going to place them on one side. These are the faithful. And the goats he's going to place on his other side. And this is what he says. He says, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then to those who did not do those things, he said, those who did not do it, you did not do it to the least of these. You did not do it unto me. You are going to destruction. And the only difference between the sheep and the goats is the ones that lived out their faith between what they did and what they didn't do. And it's not about works. It's about living out what you say you believe. If you say you believe it, you want to become more like Jesus every day, then you're going to become like him and care about those that are down and out, the poor. He also did the unthinkable, and he embraced the unclean. Uh, Kim gave me a book about a month ago called How to Be Perfect. I don't know what I should read into that. <laughs> How to Be Perfect. But it's a, it's a really good book. It's about a group of people who try to keep Leviticus for 30 days. They try to keep it for a month. Now, Leviticus is usually where people's annual Bible plans get stalled. All right, they usually crash right there because it's all about religious rituals and ceremonies and all of these utensils and clothes, you know, not to wear mixed fabrics, all kinds of crazy stuff. And so we get bored reading through it. But the point of all that is we need to be holy. It all points to being holy and not becoming unclean. Because if you became unclean, that, was, that meant separation. That meant separation from God. It meant separation from people. In some instances, you had to literally leave town. That's how bad it was. You need seven days if you became unclean to go through all of this ritual so that you become back in relationship, back in relationship with God, back in relationship with people. Now, lepers, of course, were the most unclean of anybody. They were kept outside the city. The lepers gang, even, they were suffering from this terrible disease, but they were also suffering from extreme loneliness. Whenever they came near the town, they had to literally shout out, unclean. They had to shout out unclean to make sure that people stayed back from them. Uh, But Jesus not only healed them, but he embraced them. He hugged them. 
That's incredible. It would have been one thing for him to speak the word and hug, you know, and heal them, but instead he embraces them. And we watched that video a few weeks ago about the incredible reversal that anytime something unclean touched you, you became unclean immediately, but not when Jesus touched people. When Jesus touched people, when he embraced them, his purity, his cleanliness, his cleanliness immediately passed over to them and they were made clean, which is pretty incredible. That's the incredible reversal. And while that was shocking, probably the toughest one for them to wrap their minds around was that Jesus reached out to their enemies. The oppressors, Jesus, why are you reaching out to people that we hate? They're the ones that are oppressing us. I mean, he invited a tax collector into his inner circle. He performed a miracle for a Roman centurion. I mean, a Roman of all the people. And when this Roman centurion, Jesus is talking to him, and he says, I'll come heal your servant. The Roman centurion says, nope, I'm not worthy to have you come to my house. Just say the word. Jesus said, I have not found any faith in all of Israel like this guy. Everybody standing around must have been like a Roman. He is one of our enemies. He took the gospel to the Samaritans. Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. He was up in the north. See, where he lived in Nazareth was up in the north, and Jerusalem was in the south. And if you were a good Jew, you did not go through Samaria, which was in the middle. They hated the Samaritans. And so what they would do is they would travel all the way around to get down to Jerusalem. It was inconvenient, but they were not going to set foot in Samaria. But Jesus says, I'm going straight through. I'm going into Samaria because I have an appointment. I have an appointment with a woman at a well, and he shares the gospel with her, reveals that he is the Messiah. She runs into town, and lots of Samaritans believe in Jesus, the people that the Israelites hated. He embraced their enemies. He was here for all of them, for all of the down-and-out people. So Jesus' ministry was to the down and out. He was building bridges to these people. He was tearing down the walls of hostility. He was bringing in the outcasts um, and ripping down the barricades that were keeping people out. Um, It's called the ministry of reconciliation is what it's called. And you and I have been given the same ministry of reconciliation. If we want to be like Jesus, these are the things that we need to be doing. Uh, In Ephesians 2, Paul writes, he says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Jesus became down and out so that he could save the down and out. But becoming one of us, just becoming one of us wasn't going to be enough. He was speaking healing to people with a word. He was touching them. But that enough wasn't going to cleanse us, wasn't going to cure us from our spiritual sickness because we have a sin disease. It was going to cost him everything. It says that God showed his great love for you and me, for all the world, in that while we were yet sinners, while we were still sinners, before we even came to know him, he had died for us. He had you on his mind when it was on the cross. When he was on the cross, he had not just humanity in general, but he had you in mind and he died for every sin that you've ever done, every sin that you are doing, and every sin that, every sin that you ever will do, he died for. All you have to do is accept his sacrifice. And that's going to 
free us from our spiritual bondage. Um, you know, God made provision then, and he also made provision hundreds of years earlier for the, uh, for the Hebrews when they were in bondage. They were in actual bondage in Egypt. They had become very prolific. They had become successful in Egypt, which is a symbol of the world. And Pharaoh at that time became really freaked out because there were literally millions of Hebrews. And so he enslaved them. He brought them into slavery. They are now literally prisoners in a foreign land. And you know the story. He sent Moses. He sent Moses with a message to Pharaoh, let my people go. And he wouldn't do it. And so God started sending the plagues, right? We've all seen the movie. The last one, the last one was the most severe, but it was also the most prophetic. Every firstborn male is going to die. That's what Moses had to tell everybody. The firstborn male is going to die. But God made a provision. He made a provision. Here's what you have to do. You need to take a lamb. Everybody needs a lamb. And you have to slaughter the lamb. And you have to smear its blood on the doorposts, on the sides, on the top, and on the bottom. You had to smear the blood. And if you had the blood on your doorposts, you were going to be saved. And when the angel of death passed through Egypt, if it saw the blood, you were covered. And it would pass over your house. That's where Passover came from. Now, what would have happened if people would have said, smear blood on the door? Like, that's disgusting. Well, I just painted it. Why would I do that? Right? And buy a lamb? How much is this going to cost me? I mean, that's inconvenient. The Egyptians aren't doing this. I mean, they're going to mock us if we do that. I mean, they don't have to do it. This is pretty radical, Moses. People are going to think that I've lost it. But if they hadn't done that, They would have lost it. The Egyptians paid for it with their lives. They didn't have the blood covering their doors. You might say, Nathan, that's not fair. The people, they didn't know. But no, Moses had told Pharaoh, the people knew. You were going to have to have the blood if you were going to be saved. People today know the truth. There's no excuse. You need Jesus to be saved. His blood is the only thing that is going to save us. The Hebrews, the death angel passed over. God told Moses, at this point now, once you free the people, this is going to be a constant reminder. Every year you were to celebrate Passover, this event where the angel passed over. And so you are going to take a lamb. You are going to sacrifice it for your family. You're going to take it back. You're all going to feast. You're going to have a celebration. You're going to feast on the lamb, and you're going to give thanks for the provision and the deliverance of what God has provided And these sacrifices would continue every year as they waited for the Messiah. They were looking forward to the Lamb of God who would deliver them, but not from the bondage of Egypt, but from the bondage of sin. And that's exactly what Jesus and his disciples were doing the night that he was betrayed. They were sitting in the upper room, and they had the Lamb there. And they're, you know, doing the Passover. They're commemorating this. And then Jesus uh, starts talking to them about a new covenant. Not the old covenant of what God has provided, but this new covenant that's going to be started by his blood. Not the blood of a lamb, but the blood of, you know, God's son, the eternal lamb. And the next day when people looked at the cross, they saw the blood that was smeared on the top and on the bottom and on the sides. They saw the blood that was shed for their sins, for their deliverance, for those that were bound up in sin. So remember, Jesus said to the Pharisees, I'm only giving you one sign and it's the sign of Jonah. Three days and three nights in the tomb, and then I'm coming out. It says that he's going to be in the heart of the earth. What does that mean, that he's going to be in the heart of the earth? What was Jesus doing those three days while he was in the heart of the earth? Have you ever wondered that? Like he came down off the cross, and then he raises again on the third day. But what was Jesus doing during those three days? 
Okay, buckle up, because this is the ultimate down and out. Jesus came to save the down and out, but this is the ultimate down and out. When you read through the Old Testament scriptures, you come across a couple words, especially in the Psalms, and it's Sheol and Hades. And Sheol and Hades both mean a place of the dead. Now, a lot of times people translate that hell, but that's not what it is. It's the place of the dead. And it's a place where everyone went after they died. Everyone went, both the righteous and the unrighteous. And they were waiting down in the earth until an appointed time. And that's where Jesus comes in. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit falls on the disciples. Jesus said, go and wait for the Holy Spirit. They're waiting there. The Holy Spirit falls. And then Peter, Peter can't help himself. He is filled with the Holy Spirit. He's got to say something. So he busts open the windows and he starts preaching and he quotes King David. And here's the quote, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol and you will not let your Holy One see corruption. So he quotes David. Then he goes on to say this, Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Then Jesus, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Now, if you're going to be abandoned somewhere, that means you had to have been there. I think back to like the days of the mall, right? When you would go in there and all the men looked abandoned, Outside the stores, as their wife shopped, <laughs> you had to be there if you were going to be abandoned. They were hoping not to. They would be taken away. But after Jesus died, he went down to Sheol, down to Hades. Now, what was this place of the dead? In Luke 16, Jesus tells a story of a man named Lazarus. Now, it's not his friend Lazarus that he raised from the dead. This is described as a rich man, Lazarus, and it's in Luke 16. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and he was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called up, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in agony, anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now that he is comforted here, you are in anguish. And besides all of this between us, you and I, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able to and none may cross from there to us. Now, here we have a very descriptive picture of what Sheol is. It's the land of the dead, both where the Old Testament, the righteous dead, and the wicked both go. And apparently, they can see each other. There's two sections. There's one for the godly and one for the ungodly. Apparently, they can see each other and even talk with each other, but there's this huge gap placed between them. This is a place of waiting until... Jesus makes payment, makes payment by his blood where he can ransom the righteous dead out of there. Well, which side did Jesus go to? It's important. In Luke 23, Jesus tells the thief on the cross, he says, today you will be with me in paradise. He didn't say you're going to be with me in heaven. He said you're going to be with me in paradise. So where's paradise? It's down at Abraham's side. That's where it was in the earth. And Everyone went down when they died, 
before Jesus. Jesus went down so that he could lead everyone out. In Ephesians 4, 8 and 9, Paul writes this. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended in the lower regions, the earth. Now, who were these captives that were being led out? These are the ones that are described in his mission statement. He was, the ones he was going to proclaim liberty to. Jesus wasn't going to leave the righteous dead bound up in captivity. He went down so that he could lead them out. Well, what was Jesus doing while he was down there? Well, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Jesus proclaimed. He preached. But that was a good sermon. Jesus preached. Now, there are way different opinions on what happened and how this is translated. That's why it's important to study. If you find something in Scripture that stumps you that you don't understand, don't take Nathan's word for it. Go study. Um, and there are two different words in the Greek for preach. The first one is caruso, which means to herald or to announce. And then there is another word in the Greek, which is evangelion, which is where we get our word evangelize, which means to call, to say the good news, to, you know, basically give an altar call, call people to the Lord. So which one was it? This makes a big difference, guys. Jesus wasn't there to give an altar call in Sheol. He was there to make a declaration. He was there to declare to the captives there that the time had come, that the Messiah, the one that they were looking forward to, the one that was promised to them, is now here and is going to lead them out of captivity. There is only one chance, just this life, to make a choice, to make a decision for Jesus. There's no second chances. This is it. That's why he says, today is the day of salvation. Now is the time. Jesus was there to make a declaration, to herald the good news that the promise they had been waiting for was now here. He had paid the price. He was ransoming them out of captivity, and he was going to lead them out of the gates of Hades. He kicked open the gates of Hades, and he led them to the gates of heaven, the heavenly gates. He went down so that he could lead them out. Notice who he didn't run into. Didn't run into Satan in Sheol. Satan wasn't there. And he's not in hell, not yet. So where is he? Where is Satan? You know, hell was created for the devil and his demons, and one day they will be cast into hell with all of those who reject Jesus as their Savior. So where is he? Well, Peter tells us that he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking somebody to devour. He prowls around the earth. In the book of Job, God's talking to Satan. He says, where have you been? And he says, I've been walking to and fro across the earth. At the Last Supper, it says that Satan entered Judas the night that he was going to portray him. Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness. He is on the earth, gang, prowling around with his demons. He was probably taking a victory lap, thinking that his schemes had frustrated God's plan, that he had defeated God, that he had, you know, ruined his plan of redemption. But he was in for a bit of a shock. On Resurrection Sunday, Jesus ascends to victory with a host of captives, those righteous dead that have been waiting for the Messiah. Jesus' spirit, just like that video, re-enters his body, and he comes out of the tomb. 
G- Satan's victory lap is over, and Jesus and a bunch of party crashers show up. So where did those souls go that were with him? Where did the spirits that were held captive go? There's this strange verse in Matthew 27, one of those that you kind of, you reading, and it's like it doesn't really make sense, but you kind of keep reading past it. So there's this strange little verse in Matthew 27, starting in verse 50. This is Jesus on the cross. It says, Jesus cried out again, and with a loud voice he yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and the tombs also were opened, and the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Now, I don't think I really noticed it because it's, in, it's sandwiched into this thing where it's talking about what happened when Jesus died and how the earth was shaking in the temple. But it says that many of the saints came back to life after his resurrection and went into Jerusalem and started appearing to people. How amazing would that have been? Satan thought that he won. Jesus comes out of the tomb and the saints go marching in <laughs> to Jerusalem. They go marching in. Jesus comes out to meet Mary Magdalene and the saints go marching in. Jesus went down and out to rescue the Old Testament saints, but also so that you and I can go down and out. Satan thought he'd won, that his scheming had triumphed over God, that the righteous dead were going to remain captives forever. But listen to what Paul writes to the church in Colossae, talking about being alive in Christ. This is Colossians 2. Starting in verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And some translations say, translates them say, in the cross. Triumphing over them in the cross. In Jesus' victory over death, he disarmed Satan and his demons. He disarmed the principalities and powers. They no longer have the right. They no longer have the power over you because we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. Now, do they still pester us? They still try to influence us. Of course they do. But they have no right, they have no power over us that are bought with the blood of the lamb. They've been stripped of their power. Now, this is so cool. In the Greek, the word that Paul uses here is apekduomai, which means a stripping away or a taking off. Okay? Now, this word is used during a Roman uh, truce agreement. And what would happen when a victorious general would conquer an army? He would get all of the captives together, and they would strip them down naked, and then they would march them through the streets. They would make a public spectacle of all the prisoners. And when they would get to the other general, the victorious general would stand in front of the conquered general. And what would happen is they would be dressed in their you know, regal garments, all of their battle gear, and the victorious general would walk over, and he would strip off all the medals, all of the symbols of his authority, of his power, of his rank, and he would rip them off and he would say, all of this power, all of these victories that were yours are now mine. I'm claiming them. I am apekduomai. I'm stripping them off of you. 
You might remember this famous picture of uh, General MacArthur as he's sitting on the deck of the USS Missouri at the end of World War II, and the Japanese have surrendered. Now, in the Japanese culture, uh, honor is the number one top priority for them. And they spent their entire lives trying to, you know, get honor and avoid shame and bringing shame on themselves and shame on their families. And MacArthur knew this. And he said, I am going to make them stand there in open shame. I'm going to make a mockery of them in their defeat. I'm going to remove from them all their symbols of power because of what you've done for the destruction and the death that you're responsible for. You're going to stand here in open shame in total surrender. And this is what Jesus did. It's what Jesus did to the Satans, uh, to Satan and his demons when he came down to earth. He went down into Sheol to rescue the captives. He kicked in the doors of Hades and took his saints to the gates of heaven. David writes this incredible psalm in Psalm 24. It's divided into two parts. Listen to the second half here. It says, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. And the Lord of hosts, what that means is the king of the angel armies. The king of the angel armies is victorious. He has won the battle. He stripped the devil and the demons of all their power, of all their influence over you and I, and they now stand in shameful defeat. And all they can do now is roar and try to claw at you and me. They're trying to take as many people as they can down to hell with them because they know that they are defeated. When Jesus rose from the grave, he went down to the grave so he could come out of the tomb. And that's what we celebrate today, the King of glory, his victory, and our freedom in him. Amen. Resurrection Sunday. I love it. He wins. We know the end of the book. We win. We may go down. If Jesus tarries and we go down, we're coming back out when he returns.